Canada. All right, hi everyone, and welcome back to Terry Foxy Ladies. Tonight we have a super special guest with us, so welcome to the show, Megan Murphy. Hi, <laughs> welcome. Thanks. Oh, yeah. This is so exciting already. <laughs> How's your quarantine going? Pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> I like. Um, I don't know. I mean, I mostly work from home already, although I'm not usually literally at home this much. Usually, like, uh, I have a lot more meetings and events and socializing and travel stuff, but I've mostly just been kind of seeing it as an opportunity to, like, get home things done and get some more work done and things like that. So I think I'm probably better off than a lot of people. Things are sort of less weird Mm -hmm. for me and probably less stressful um but of course it's still I live alone with my dogs I'm not really alone (laughs) but you know I do miss hanging out with human beings and seeing my friends and and things like that yeah I guess none of us are in quarantine or in isolation by ourselves so that must be such a different and weird experience just being completely alone doing it yeah it's weird to not have any human contact um like, and it didn't, it didn't get to me for a couple of weeks. And then it sort of started to like, give me like low level anxiety. I was like, I would like to hug a person. <laughs> like, And I'm like a pretty like huggy person and like a pretty social person. So I don't know if maybe like people who hate hugging are like stoked right now. They're like, Whoa. <laughs> I don't have to touch people anymore, but I kind of miss it. But I, I mean, it is, I've, it's actually been fine. Like I'm mostly like pretty happy, but my moods like strangely fluctuate between like feelings of elation at like not having FOMO on my fucking back all the time. And then mm-hmm. feeling like weird about not being able to hang out. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a struggle. Um, So let's, I suppose we can begin at the beginning. Um, (laughs) I first heard about you when there was a petition calling for your removal from a Canadian website, rabble.ca. And I thought this was interesting because this kind of happened before cancel culture as a phenomenon really took off. Uh, So maybe you could tell us a little bit about working for Rabble and... Um, why you decided to ultimately leave. Right. Okay. This is a good place to start, actually, because I find that most people who interview me nowadays don't know about that history. So they think that people only started trying to cancel me when I started talking about gender identity, but that's not true. They were trying to cancel me long before that. (laughs) It's just that it was more Canada-centric then. A sordid history of cancellation. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is is probably why I can, like, handle cancellation attempts so easily nowadays. Like, eh, same old, same old. Um, So, yeah, I worked with Rabble for a long time. At first, um, I got involved with their podcasting network. So this was when I was still a student. Um, I was doing a, was I, mm, I think I was maybe still finishing my BA at that point, even like I was doing 
uh, a radio show, a feminist radio show at Vancouver Co-op Radio, and I was finishing my BA at SFU in gender, sexuality, and women's studies. And I did uh, my internship at Rabble with the podcasting network and then temporarily worked as the podcast producer at Rabble and sort of from there moved into, I was cross-posting my, my writing there and my podcast that I was doing um, and then eventually was working part-time as an editor for Rabble for a while. Um, and mostly it was fine, um, although <sighs> Rabble is a pretty Toronto-centric website. And for those who don't know, Rabble is like a progressive Canadian online news magazine, I believe they call themselves, and mostly funded by labor organizations and very much about um, advocating for the labor movement. Um, And as we know, the, the left and the labor movement, unfortunately, has taken up a pro- sex industry position, I guess you could say, um, that's been going on within, you know, the past five to 10 years, I guess. So like the NDP, um, labor organizations, the labor movement, and especially the left in Ontario, um, advocate for the full legalization or decriminalization of prostitute prostitution, which is at odds with my position and the position of the feminists that I work with around the world who advocate for the Nordic model and, and want to criminalize men who purchase women in the sex trade or otherwise exploit them. Um, so I, I didn't really know the extent to which this had been going on. I sort of found out later, but a lot of people, mostly Toronto-based people on the left, were trying to get me fired from Rabble for a long time, actually, Um, And I think it was pretty stressful for some of the people that I was working with at Rabble, as well as my boss. Um, And I think what they sort of like, because of that stress and because it caused them conflict with their political allies and the people they were wanting to work with, I think people were refusing to write for them and stuff like that because I, I published, you know, stuff that was critical of the sex trade and they were in favor of the sex trade. And so, yeah, so that cancel culture thing was still really there. It was still that, like, I don't even want to associate with your website because there's literally one person on the entire website with this position. Like, nobody else on the website was writing against prostitution, you know? Like, I was literally the only one who was critical of pornography, of BDSM, of prostitution, all that stuff, right? So it's like, you know one person out of all of these people who were writing, you'd think that they could handle it, but they could not. And what were your feelings about that at the time? Because I remember when I found out about um, what was happening, uh, it was probably the first time I was confronted with the fact that the Canadian left uh, is willing to sort of use identity claims cynically. So, for example, you were called racist because you said something against Chris Brown, obviously for beating the shit out of Rihanna. (laughs) And when I saw that, I was just like, oh, my God, like, because that used to be a conservative talking point, right? Like, oh, the left, like SJWs, they, they use these claims like to try to bully people and I was like no way like that can't be but then when I saw this happening to you I I that was kind of the first time that I was like oh wait the left isn't purely made up of people with good intentions um some of them are major aggressors 
So, I mean, was this surprising to you or were you kind of like aware about how, of how unpopular your position was at the time or just kind of how, how did you take it? <laughs> I mean, I think at first it was really disappointing and frustrating to me and upsetting and stressful. Um, it isn't now just because this is how it goes and people just do it in such a knee jerky way that I'm, I just don't care. It's like what you're saying is so baseless. Like I don't give a fuck, but like, yeah, at the time, like I had been so invested in the left for so long, like my whole life. Um, you know, my dad was involved with the NDP for years. We lived in a co-op, um, we, I always voted for the NDP as long as I was of age. So since I was 18, I voted for the NDP in every single provincial and federal election. My dad was a big part of the labor movement um, when I was a kid because he worked for the post office and he was pretty involved in the union there. And it was just, you know, this the way that I was being treated by the left just over these these a couple of kind of key issues at first, mainly the prostitution thing and eventually the gender identity thing, which of course we can talk about later. Um, you know, and the way that they were just so, I, I guess I, I thought like when I first started writing about prostitution, I just thought if I explain this like really clearly and rationally, then they'll understand and it will make sense to them. But it, it didn't work at all. There was never any real conversation and they never argued with intellectual integrity right like they would just they would do the same thing that they do to women around the gender identity issue so they just call you names they call you whorephobic they call you a swerf a sex worker exclusionary feminist they accuse you of hating women in prostitution and of wanting to criminalize women in prostitution and none of these things are true of course um, and they just don't really fully engage with your actual position for the most part. They just vilify you. And like you say, you know, start throwing around these other accusations to try to, I guess, amplify or like bolster their, their desire to ostracize you and ensure that people don't take you seriously or listen to you by calling you a white supremacist or a racist and all these other various phobic things. So when that petition came about to try to have me fired from rabble, they accused me of racism and transphobia and whorephobia um, and all of that stuff. And, you know, again, it was just all baseless. Like the racism stuff. Yeah. They mentioned the Chris Brown thing. And then they also were angry that I had written this article about Laverne Cox uh, after he had done a, a like nude spread in posing in magazine Playboy. yeah like well, it was a lure but I mean it was a nude spread so and I was just like and everyone was like yay this is so empowering like <laughs> another naked dude. woman <laughs> naked and it's like okay like what does this do for anyone nothing like and in that time I really didn't have a very hardcore position on gender identity probably still even used correct pronouns or I may have just avoided using pronouns altogether. So, you know, I wasn't even criticizing transgenderism itself as an ideology and our, our Canadian legislation bill 16 hadn't come about yet. So I hadn't started writing about that yet. So it was really a pretty tepid article. And from that, it was like, you're a white supremacist. And <laughs> yeah. you know, they, they were just saying that to try to 
yeah. get me fired and canceled. They weren't saying it because there was any, you know, there was no basis again. For of course. And I remember reading your piece on that and I thought this was like totally standard feminist position. Um, I thought, right. Yeah. Like it was pretty, um, feminist 101 that those types of objectifying magazines are anti-feminist <laughs> and it, it was weird to see that level of vitriol like if someone disagreed it's like okay like let's hear the argument but the level of vitriol was just so disproportionate um so in terms of of that and in terms of prostitution why do you think people were so threatened by it because again like i i, I can understand like i've changed my mind about those things before so i can understand having a different opinion about it but why does it incite that level, do you think, of craziness? Uh, like, why do they need to shut you down that bad? Like, why is it so threatening? Yeah, it's very confusing. And I can never, like, fully get my head around. I don't know. Like, I don't know that there's one particular reason. I think part of it is that, you know, as we see today, people conflate politics with identity. So they take things, they take disagreement really personally. So if you disagree with a political or ideological position, they seem to feel as though they're being personally attacked instead of just taking it as a surface disagreement or an intellectual disagreement. You know, people have a very hard time having rational conversations about these kinds of disagreements nowadays without getting really emotional and turning to vitriol or just blocking and shutting things down immediately. Um, with regard to the sex trade, to me, it seems like, you know, based on the, the, the people who were trying really, really hard to shut me down were people who were working with or within organizations that were lobbying to decriminalize the sex trade. So I think that they'd probably done a lot of work to get um, politicians and key players in the labor movement on board with their position to advocate um, uh, to decriminalize. And then, you know, my arguments, you know, people started paying attention. Like that was the biggest problem with me is that people started to listen to me. Um, and I think that they just weren't used to, there was no, there was nobody else in Canada who really ha was gaining like a big platform in that regard, like big <laughs> in terms of like the small space of like feminism and, and the left in Canada, which is not very big in the grand scheme of things. But, you know, of course, Feminist Current has like a global audience. Like we actually have a larger audience in the U.S. and the U.K. than we do in Canada. That's just because there's more people there, partly. But, you know, so people... And people start to feel galvanized. Like when they they think, oh, I can't say this because I'll get attacked and shut down and no one else thinks this and this is the wrong position to take. So I'm just going to stay quiet. I'm not supposed to. All my friends think this. Like the political parties that I support think this. Like all of these activists who I like think this. I can't say anything. But then they see other people who, who they maybe like or respect start to question these ideas and speak out about these ideas. And that makes them feel like they can also. You know, we see this in movements in general, but we see this, you know, with regard to gender identity also, where it's like more and more women start speaking out. And that means that other women feel confident too. Also, they're not alone. So that this is the thing with the prostitution issue. So all of these people who'd worked really hard to control the narrative and dominate 
you know, the left's political and ideological position on prostitution, suddenly that was being challenged. And I think they probably felt threatened. I think they probably felt like maybe all these things that they'd advocated for, all this work they'd done to try to get the laws changed, that was that was under threat. Um, and And they're just not used to being challenged. You know, there are people who like having power and control, which I think is ironic because the left pretends to be against power and control and hierarchy, but these people really are invested in sort of being bullies and, and ensuring that they aren't challenged and that no one challenges their position. And so I don't know. Yeah. I think that, that there's a few things going on there. For sure. Um, <laughs> so you are based in Vancouver uh, Jenna and Ainsley did spend some time in Vancouver a few years ago. Um, Brings me back. Yeah, <laughs> bad bad years. <laughs> really? Why was it bad? Just young, um, drunk idiots. They escaped yeah, Ontario okay. to like run away from their problems, yeah, and then, you, know, you know what happened. Not everyone happen. here there does. Was... Like young people, they leave yeah. Vancouver. Yeah, that's like the Ontario. Is that what happens? Yeah. Do young people leave Ontario and come to Vancouver yeah. and then? Then return with their tails between their yeah, legs. Yeah, in, in search for <laughs> freedom. That it's a vision quest into adulthood. Yeah. <laughs> what happens in Vancouver when young people come here that's bad? Oh, I don't know if it was necessarily Vancouver. It was more so just getting away from... It was just from... us. Yeah. <laughs> we were bad. <laughs> I mean, I think Vancouver sucks, so like... <laughs> okay. I mean, yeah, I mean, I've been drinking alcohol in Vancouver for... Uh, how long now? 25 years? <laughs> so I get that part. <laughs> I've gotten in lots of trouble here. <laughs> there it is. Um, so what it tells us, I guess, about like the fem- feminist activist scene in Vancouver, because I remember thinking, wow, Vancouver is where it's happening. You know, you got Megan Murphy with Feminist Current. You've got Vancouver Rape Relief. And then recently you had the Women's Library open. But um, a lot of crazy shit with that, though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So their (laughs) reputation is not always good. Um, So I don't know. Tell us a little bit about that and tell us what it's like to be a feminist in Vancouver when you're on the side of the radical feminists who are not popular with the modern left and the modern social justice movement. Yeah, I mean, we're really lucky in Vancouver to have Vancouver Rape Relief. Um, They are really foundational in terms of the Canadian feminist movement in general, but especially in Vancouver. And it's allowed women like myself to learn and talk about this kind of stuff and to kind of form a more radical analysis, at least an analysis that challenges, you know, liberal narratives. Um, And, you know, Vancouver Rape Relief also like something that is really important about what they do beyond helping women who've suffered violence at the hands of men is that they educate people and they educate young women. So, you know, young women come to volunteer and they can educate them about the feminist movement and about all these positions um, around prostitution, pornography, and so on and so forth, which, you know, young women really aren't exposed to those ideas often. They certainly aren't in women's studies, now called gender studies, of course, and they, they really aren't aren't too much online. You know, the dominant narrative, of course, is around this sex work is work thing and 
everything is a choice and pornography can be empowering and it's harmless and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, part of the reason that I was able to exist and, you know, create Feminist Current and not sort of crumble under the pressure was because of Vancouver Rape Relief and all the women that Rape Relief that attracted over the years. So there's this whole group of, of allies, right. Of people who've worked with rape relief over the years, um, volunteered with them, etc. Um, so that was great. And, you know, I, when I was working on the radio show at co-op radio before I was doing a ton of writing, I was probably doing a bit at that point. I met women like Lee Lakeman and Aaron Graham and women like Trisha Bapti who, um, escaped the sex trade in Vancouver and now as an activist, um, and Sherry Smiley, <clears throat> who's also, she's an indigenous feminist activist and all these, these women who, you know, really helped me solidify my analysis. Um, and, and just to be clear, what is your analysis? So, you know, feminists typically talk about, um, female oppression or women's oppression, I guess now. So what's the difference? What's the main tension just for the listeners between the radical feminist conception of that and then sort of now the more mainstream conception of that? Well, I mean, with I'll, I'll speak specifically to the issue of prostitution, um, which is that, you know, obviously prostitution will not obviously because sometimes people pretend otherwise is something that men do to women. So the vast majority of people in prostitution selling sex are women and girls. And the vast majority of people buying sex are men. Um, and the vast majority of women and girls in prostitution are not there by choice. They're there because they don't have any other choice. And, you know, fundamentally radical feminists don't think that people should be able to buy access to other people's bodies. Um, and, you know, we all know that there's, there's a ton of abuse in prostitution. And I think that it's actually pretty reasonable to see prostitution itself, itself as a form of sexual abuse. Um, you're having sex with somebody that doesn't want to have sex with you. And I don't know why leftists and people who call themselves feminists don't understand that as being along on the spectrum of, of rape. That's what rape is like having sex with somebody who doesn't want to have sex with you. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. And I guess I, it's an analysis that rejects that idea of choice um, in, you know, and that sort of treats choice as something that happens outside of broader context and in a bubble. So anything that is a choice, anything that you consent to is inherently ethical. So I would disagree with that. And I would assume that most radical feminists disagree with that as well. Um, I mean, I don't identify as a radical feminist. I don't, I don't think I really ever have, although this is sort of what my feminism is centered on and, and what my analysis is rooted in. Um, so I don't necessarily want to speak on behalf of all radical feminists mm -hmm. or anything like that. But um, yeah, I kind of lost my train of thought. There. <laughs> uh, picking, well, picking up on that, um, you wrote in Feminist Current um, about, it was after you got banned from Twitter and you said it was called something like uh, the left wants me to shut up and the right wants me to join them. And I don't think I should have to do either. And you just talked about the futility of the old like left versus right uh, 
politics, sticking to concretely to those two spheres. Um, so I guess just tell us a little bit about your political journey as a socialist feminist, uh, how your views have evolved over time, um, and sort of how to, how, or what do you think about the perception of, since you're speaking about prostitution, for example, the perception that radical feminists um, are aligned with conservatives and that that is a bad thing or that if conservatives are also against prostitution, then that says something about your position on the issue, blah, 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 if you want to just speak a little bit to that. Right. I mean, the idea that feminists are allied with conservatives just because they happen to, you know, maybe agree with them on certain aspects or issues makes no sense because obviously people like we all agree with all sorts of people in all sorts of areas and don't necessarily share all of their political positions. Like probably most of us agree that murder is bad. And yet if I say that murder is bad and then like a right wing person says, yes, I also agree that murder is bad. We should try to make sure that people don't murder other people. (laughs) That doesn't mean that I'm in bed with the right automatically. Um, At the same time, I really don't like and don't much care about the left-right divide anymore. I don't really think that 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 binary is applicable to most people. Most people in the world... I don't think identify as either left or right. Most people in the world just have a variety of opinions and political positions or are kind of just apolitical and wouldn't even really necessarily totally understand what that was about. Like, are you left or right? It's like, Oh, I don't know. I think this, what does that mean? You know? Um, I, you know, I am a socialist as far as my positions on things like uh, privatization and healthcare and, you know, universal daycare and taxes and, you know, public school and all of those things go and social safety nets. And, you know, I, I advocate for higher welfare rates and I why do you think all that stuff, basic income. Why do you think all that stuff is not taken into account? Like, it seems like that stuff is so important when you're talking about politics and policy, like that's going to have the most impact on people's lives. But it seems like it doesn't matter what you think about that. It matters what you think about this other thing, like the words that people are using or like, Mm -hmm. is it just kind of that it's kind of more exciting and like sexier to talk about these other issues? Is it like a bandwagon thing? Is it like a very conscious like power thing like the people in power don't want us to address those issues so they're distracting us like what do you think is going on there i think that a lot of younger people don't really understand the history of the feminist movement or of the left so you know they've learned all that they know on the internet so if you go on twitter and you follow people who consider themselves or identify as leftists or as feminists, they have all these political positions. So I think that they just assume like, oh, if you uh, say sex work is work, you know, that's what you say as a leftist. If you say trans women are women, you know, that's what progressive people and that's what feminists say. Um, And I think that uh, university is at fault because I think that they 
you know, academic institutions have failed to educate people about the history of the women's movement. I mean, even when I was in university, there was, there, we learned a little bit about, you know, like we read Catherine McKinnon a bit and Andrea Dworkin a bit, but that was pretty much it. You know, like I had to seek out second wave feminist writing and radical feminist writing, mostly myself. You know, we were reading more contemporary, you know, gender theory or queer theory um, and kind of third wave stuff. So people just don't, they don't know and they don't understand. I think people don't even really understand how important the feminist movement has been. You know, the feminist movement could very well be seen as the most important political movement in history. Um, and yet, if you look at what feminism is doing today, it's really pretty silly. Um, you know, it's hard to take feminism seriously if you look at what mainstream feminism is up to and what, you know, feminists go on about online. Um, and in terms of the left, I mean, I don't know. It's just, we sort of all seem to be engaged in like a, a power struggle. So to me, it seems like people care because we function online so much, people care a lot more about likes and retweets and gaining a platform and attention. And, um, so virtue signaling is, is valued more than, you know, the actual work that you're doing or the actual complex positions that you have, which are, which are hard to discuss online, especially when you're discussing it in front of an audience with anonymous people who are going to jump in and troll you or attack you or call you a bunch of names and refuse to engage with you. And then you all get distracted and derailed into this stupid argument and nobody's listening to each other. Very well said. Um, the New York Times recently ran an article about how coronavirus kills more men due to biological reasons. Um, this was the guy who wrote, uh, he wrote a book called The like Undeniable Supremacy of Females or something like that. And it was like all about how women like live longer and have like better endurance and all this stuff. Anyway, it was clearly based on the fact that male people and female people have certain biological differences. Um, and then... So what is his um, argument? Is it because that, like, dudes have more health issues at a certain age? Or, like, what was his argument there? I, I haven't read the book, but it's just, uh, it was just talking about how biologically we're, we are exposed to different sorts of health problems. Mm. Um, and, uh, just, I think it, it was written in a time when an argument like that would have been seen as extremely, um, provocative. Right. Um, be, not for the same reasons they would be today. Back then it was because like, what are you talking about? Men are obviously better. <laughs> Whereas now it's like, you can't talk about biological sex. What are you crazy? Um, so there's, there's that element. And then there's another coronavirus related uh, story that revolves around female reproductive anatomy. I don't know, Ainsley, if you wanted to touch on it quickly. Um, like the, the pregnancy shit. Yeah. Um, yeah, so in Canada right now, there's a bunch of stuff going around at certain hospitals where, first of all, they're um, making it so that women who are in labor and coming to hospitals to give birth are only allowed one person in the room with them. So a lot of women are having to decide between having their like partner or their mom in the room with them while they give birth over their doula or vice versa, which is like obviously really troubling for some women because it's like you need your doula there, but then you have to choose between that or your like husband or whatever. And then there's also certain um, 
hospitals have been putting into effect that if you're coming to the hospital to give birth, you have to have an epidural. Like, there's no question about it. And you can obviously choose not to have an epidural, but then you can't give birth at that hospital. And the reasoning is because um, if you go, if you have to have an emergency C-section without an epidural, it takes too much time to put on all the, like, protective equipment before you get into the operating room. So it's just kind of like a safety measure, but it's also, like, with epidurals, that, like, makes you have a higher chance of needing a C-section, And then when you have an epidural, you have to stay in the hospital for like a minimum of 24 hours off the bat. So it's like if you're trying to keep women safe, then like wouldn't the safest thing to do be to keep them in there for the least amount of time as possible and let them have as much support as they need? Like, I don't know. Yeah. So so those are two kind of things that came up that are topical and that both clearly have to do with sexual reproductive biology. Mm -hmm. And we know how important that used to be for feminism. Case in point, this pregnancy stuff, who does that impact? Only female people. Um, So why do you think, Megan, that talking about sexual reproductive (laughs) biology has become so gosh darn controversial? (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, the, the trans rights movement, let's call it, (laughs) I don't know what (laughs) rights trans activists are fighting for that they don't already have, or that trans people don't already have, I should say. Um, but they've done a really good job of, you know, like in order to convince people that their ideology and their mantras are true and that, you know, trans women really are women, they have to pretend that biology doesn't exist and that it doesn't matter. Um, Which of course is in conflict with the entire feminist movement and the purpose of the feminist movement, which is to advocate for women who have been oppressed, not because of their gender expression, um, but because of their sex, just because they were born female and being born female in this world has meant that women and girls have been treated in a particular way for a very long time. And that's, you know, because of their reproductive capacity at its root, you know, that's, that's where patriarchy comes from. Um, Once men figured out, this is from uh, Gerda Lerner's book, The Creation of Patriarchy. This is her theorizing. Um, You know, once men discovered that they played a role in reproduction, they wanted to control their bloodline, which does make sense. You know, you want to, keep your kids so they can work your land or whatever. Um, You want to keep your clan together. You want to spread your seed, I guess. Um, But what that turned into in practice was controlling women and controlling women's bodies. So, you know, now, of course, we can't, we can't even say like, it's disgusting to me because you see these feminist organizations or organizations that supposedly advocate on behalf of women's reproductive rights using terms like pregnant people. Birthing or person. Menstruators. Menstruators. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, that, which is, you know, that's what I got. I, they, they tried to finally, like, I mean, well, that's why I quit Rabble in the end was because I wrote an article criticizing Planned Parenthood for using those terms, menstruator and pregnant people. They pulled the article from the site and then, you know, they all ostracized me and stopped speaking to me, which made it hard to work there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so, um, 
sounds like, like menstruator <laughs> sounds like this like machinic it's, like I, it's so funny to me it gives me the willies like can you imagine someone actually saying menstruator to you or it's yeah. like calling yeah. it's like calling dudes like semen expellers it's silly as fuck and just like reduces yeah. all meaning and definition of woman like it's just so silly yeah, when it sounds dehumanizing yeah. in the same way that if you refer to mothers as birthers, you know, that is not, it's, you know, it, it sounds like it's farm dehumanizing. animals. <laughs> yeah. Totally, totally. It sounds like a handmaid's tale kind of thing, yeah. right? It's creepy. Um, but, you know, you see, like, I read an article in The Cut recently that was, they were talking about what was happening with women who were birthing um who were pregnant or who were giving birth during this pandemic thing and they interviewed a midwife about it and the midwife kept using the term pregnant person throughout the entire interview she didn't use the term woman or female once and I was just like so angry and shocked that like midwives of all people should be the ones a that know that only females can give birth <laughs> but also should be advocating and talking about these issues as a woman-centered issue as an issue that impacts women not people our friend um she actually is like a certified doula and she was always telling us just the crazy things in her classes about how the same thing like when you're learning to be a doula you have to say pregnant person and stuff and if you don't then like the teacher like waves a finger at you and stuff and it's like that's how like eventual midwives are starting out right they're doulaing well most of them at least and it's like they're starting out with the instruction from a teacher telling them to not use those type of terms and kind of like disassociate from the reality that like you're entering a profession that's solely about women like you've got to know that you know <laughs> like just yeah, weird. Yeah, it's really fucked up. And the problem is also because some people might say, oh, okay, well, you know, if you use a word, it's not going to kill you. Like, why don't you just play along? Um, so, I mean, we could get into that uh, if you want. But also, uh, it's just indicative of the priorities of the left right now. Um, for me, like, uh, I've been following feminism for a long time. I've been volunteering for a long time doing all that shit and there has been a shift and it like is really away from those more concrete issues like childcare, pregnancy um prostitution and more into like gender expression like what are you wearing like how does your femininity intersect with your discourse analysis and your like in the man spreading you experience, like it's always this like weird, uh, like really surface level identity stuff. And it's like 90% is like, what words should we use? What words should we use? We need to change the words. We need to make them inclusive of everyone. And then we need to study like, like how I feel today. <laughs> like it's this really, um, it's just not like, I just don't understand how it, anyone thinks it's, it's radical or, or anything, but I don't know. What do you think? What would you say to someone who said, look, just use the words, who cares? Um, it doesn't make it, why do you care so much, I guess, or, or, or something like that? I mean, it just, it has, it has wider implications than just politeness, because you're right, I think a lot of people are like, it's just a word, who cares? Like, just like, say it to be nice, to be polite, like, just to not offend anybody or not be controversial. But of course, as we've seen, um, it isn't just about you know, being nice to somebody who would prefer that you use a different pronoun, because we're talking about laws and policies. If we were just talking about individuals and like this person 
sitting next to me at the bar who is a man, but, you know, has some kind of mental illness or, you know, thinks that he's actually a woman or just really wants to be treated as a woman, whatever the fuck that means. (laughs) Um, You know, sure. Fine. I guess that doesn't matter that much. Although like it's different if they're kind of bullying you into it or forcing you into it, that should be sort of voluntary. If you want to decide, if you want to go ahead and call this dude, she, but you know, what's happening now is that for example, males are being allowed to compete against women and girls in sport, which essentially, you know, destroys women's sport. You know, women and girls cannot compete fairly on fair ground if they're being forced to compete against males who are inherently stronger and bigger and their muscles develop differently and their organs are bigger and, you know, they have more lung capacity and all these issues, you know, their hips move differently. Right. Um, And when we're talking about like, you know, men being allowed to access women's change rooms and transition houses. Like that's actually really dangerous, similar to the issue of men being allowed to be transferred to female prisons if they identify as trans women, you know, that endangers women and girls. And, you know, beyond that, it's like, oh God, they're doing that like pot banging thing here at seven for the health uh. workers, which I know this is not, this is not oh a God, can they be quiet? <laughs> I'm such like a judgmental snobby like person that I'm just like, stop participating in things. <laughs> like you're just doing this and put it on. It's cause it's all the yuppies around me that do it. Like it's nobody in my like shitty apartment. Yeah. It's, like, the like condo it's people. It's all the people who are like live Instagram stories. <laughs> With like exactly. their beautiful hundred dollar copper pots being like ding ding. <laughs> I just also just don't like like group things or something. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that like anyway. I saw some pictures of like these hotels and stuff that were turning on the lights in the empty rooms on like the side in like the shape of hearts to like give like people morale and then some guy commented on one of the pictures being like can the homeless people see that from down below <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I, yeah exactly I don't I mean it's fine I don't have any like legitimate position against it beyond <laughs> the fact that I feel like annoyed <laughs> it's gonna be in the news Megan Murphy hates healthcare workers yeah, the next thing you're getting cancelled of your yeah, building exactly. <laughs> fuck nurses <laughs> we're putting that and in the like, promo I, <laughs> Megan Murphy is a nurse oh, yeah. phone <laughs> <laughs> totally. that should be in, that should be in the description of the episode nurse phobe was on the podcast tonight <laughs> Things you didn't know about Megan Murphy. (laughs) But yeah, what you were saying, it is the scariest thing about it is that it isn't just this courtesy thing. It's that it informs policy and that by taking away and controlling this language, it makes women unable to actually express their realities and what they go through. Yeah, totally. I mean, we can't, it's not possible for us to explain what women's oppression means if we can't talk about women as females, like if we can't talk about why women need rights, we can't advocate for women's rights. And you can't just say, Oh, women need rights because they're treated differently because they wear mascara. Cause that's not true. Um, you know, it has nothing to do with how we feel on the inside. Women can feel all sorts of different ways and they're still treated as women. I mean, it's such a bad argument 
And of course, it's also a really sexist argument because it plays into all these old fashioned stereotypes about what a woman is or should be or should look like, you know, that we're somehow inherently feminine, i.e., you know, passive and irrational and emotional and we like to wear high heels and we like sexual objectification like those ideas are are harmful to women in many ways um and you know yeah like i i didn't get super involved in this issue the gender identity issue until it started becoming about policy and legislation because I mean, first of all, because I was still in the process of thinking through the ideology and my arguments, and I don't like to speak out against about issues unless I'm sure that I can speak clearly and articulately about it. You know, like I want to be really clear on my analysis um, if I'm going to talk about it or write about it. So I was still reading and thinking and listening and learning. And then, of course, Bill 16 and C16 came along and I was like, okay. And, you know, and I was seeing, you know, all these women who I really respected and liked and admired and who were important to me being vilified and shut down and no platform like Julie Bindel, you know, like Janice Raymond, like Sheila Jeffries, like Lee Lakeman and the women at Vancouver Rape Relief who were being targeted and harassed and, and you know, people were trying to, you know, constantly after them because of their women-only policy. Um, so I felt like it was my responsibility to speak up on their behalf and to speak up um, about this issue. But yeah, and and then the, the fact that it was becoming about legislation and policy, I was like, okay, this this really matters. So I, I do have to do something. Um, let's talk about Me Too. Good old so Me Too. You wrote a piece uh, when Me Too was happening. This was when the whole Aziz Ansari thing happened. Um, so there was a story that came out um, for the listeners, I guess, although I think most people are aware of it, where... I think we talked uh, about it on a prior podcast, too. Yeah, where he was kind of, It wasn't quite, like, um, physically forced, but there was definitely some, some boundaries were crossed, psychologically at least. And uh, Megan, you wrote, uh, How can we expect men to stop behaving like this when we are constantly normalizing and reinforcing this behavior? While indeed individual men need to be held accountable for their behavior, what also needs to happen is a cu- cultural shift, one that all of us are responsible for participating in. So, I don't know, tell us about that. What, what kind of a, cul- how, what would that look like, this cultural shift? Um, and do you feel like that's panned out since Me Too? Or I guess, what are your thoughts on the trajectory of that particular feminist campaign? Yeah, the Me Too thing, I feel like it's sort of, you know, I'm always kind of changing my mind about what I think about it. And when I wrote that article, you know, that whole situation with Aziz Ansari and that young woman's article that she wrote in Babe, um, (laughs) I mean, that was a really stupid article. It was really badly written and nothing really that bad happened to her and I'm actually kind of annoyed that she inserted it into the Me Too movement slash narrative because I feel like it made it makes the whole movement sort of less serious and it makes people take it less seriously because they're like oh really is this what we're talking about like she wasn't raped she wasn't Mm -hmm. assaulted etc you know she she was pressured into doing things that she didn't want to do because that's how men are socialized to behave. So that is a problem. And that was the problem that I was talking about. You know, men are 
socialized to be the aggressors and women are socialized to be polite and not to make men feel bad or uncomfortable or rejected. You know, like I've done that my whole life and, you know, like I'm not a particularly passive person, but you sort of, you don't want to hurt their feelings. That's what you're thinking. You're like, I don't want to make this an awkward situation. Um, And men are just used to kind of pushing and pushing and pushing and thinking that that's an appropriate way to go into sexual situations with women. Um, And they do that in all sorts of ways. And I don't think that all those men are bad people. I think that often they don't even, like, I don't think Aziz Ansari had any idea that that's how his behavior was being interpreted. That's, I don't think he had any idea that she was like not feeling into it. Yeah. One thing, one thing I kind of was thinking recently in that if comparing that situation, how you said he, uh, that article inserted itself into the Me Too movement, whereas uh, a comparable one being the Louis C.K. one, where I would argue that actual, uh, some type of assault took place. I wonder if that opened the door more for his comeback, his recent comeback, because in season, sorry, is able to do his comeback when he didn't necessarily do something as terrible but then it makes it maybe do, do you agree that it could make it okay for someone like louis ck etc to come back after having done something like that well i think that louis ck should be able to come back so that's a that's a i like louis ck because <laughs> he's really I, funny um, <laughs> he's a genius I he's a genius without, um, re- repercussion or to make it into a joke the way well so just to be clear so um louis ck did ask for permission to i can't believe i'm saying this to jerk off in front of those women in front of women because because i remember when i first read about his oh, story it was sorry, that, that he like word. blocked yeah, it, it was that he, like, blocked the doorway, and I was like, this is, like, psychopathic. Mm-hmm. But then I read more about it, and nothing like that happened. People just, like, tacked that on, I guess, because the original story wasn't spicy enough. But, uh, yeah, he, he just, like, asked these women if he could masturbate in front of them, and they said yes. And they say that they said yes, because I think they thought that he was mm-hmm. joking. Yeah. So and he, he did, actually did. And, and then, you're like, oh, shit, Louis C.K. is masturbating beside me. Your <laughs> I guess, what do, you, what do you think about, like, what do you think about... How do we kind of like generalize that more? Um, yeah, like, I guess I opening mean, the door for more bad behavior, because I, I too, I, I see some stuff and I'm just like, you know, this isn't really probably where we should draw the line because um, it, it, then then that's just too far. And where do you begin but then, with But we it, know like, that with like men, you give them an, if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. And like, it, like these interpersonal things are just impossible to kind of, uh, figure out I think in the public but yeah just more generally speaking if not for Louis CK but for someone maybe more who who did so, like cross the line unambiguously um what do you think about that I guess I mean yeah like so I don't really think that what Louis CK did was all that bad to be honest I think he's kind of a creep but I mean he's always <laughs> been pretty open about being a big so I didn't really come as that much of a surprise to me I guess (laughs) I was like yeah he's kind of a perv um but I I don't I mean I don't think that men are coming back who were me too'd as it were like I mean even Louis CK isn't really being permitted to have a, a, a genuine comeback I mean he's still doing comedy but you know he's not he can't you know get like he just produced a a special and it's on his website but you know it's not like it's on Netflix right um and I guess I mean I it's just that like to me it's a it's a more complicated subject 
than people would like it to be. Um, these kinds of situations are not black and white, you know, like I've written in the past about gray rape. So, you know, situations where it's like, you say no, and the guy kind of keeps pushing and you're like, okay, no, thank you. See you later. <laughs> and they keep pushing. And then you sort of are making and it's somebody that you are into, right? So you're making out with them and hooking up with them. And maybe for whatever reason, you don't want it to go further. But then, you know, somehow you end up having sex anyway. And it's not the kind of situation where I'm going to call the cops or I'm going to go around accusing him of being a rapist. But it's still a situation that I'm not happy with. And I think this guy's an asshole. Mm. And I think that it should be okay to be like, this guy's an asshole and he crossed my boundaries and I don't have to call that rape in a legal sense. And I think that's a source of conflict in feminism because a lot of feminists would want to call that rape. And I, I, I sort of get why they want to do that um, because they want to dissuade men from behaving in that way or they want them to take it seriously. But I do think that a lot of this is going to, you know, change is going to happen, um, you know, because it's going to happen in different ways. And part of that is just going to be cultural and the way that we interact with each other. And a lot of these situations come about, like I said, because of the way that we're socialized. So it ends up being, this is not an ideal way to describe the situation, but it often ends up being a communication issue where men are not paying attention to women's body language and the signals that they're giving off. And like, Maybe a woman isn't openly saying no, but why are you so out of touch that you're not sort of noticing that a woman is sort of pulling away a little bit and that you're, you know, and I, I just think men behave like that in a lot of contexts. Like, I don't know if you've, if you guys are in relationships with men, but you know, like I've had lots of boyfriends and so many of my experiences with almost all of those men is that they kind of they don't really listen, you know, and they, they aren't picking up on subtle cues and they're sort of tuned out. And I don't know, I, I think like men are, women are, women are, I'm making broad sweeping generalizations, but women are socialized to be more empathetic and to pay more attention to people around them um, and to think about other people's emotions and how they're feeling. And again, like whether or not they're making people uncomfortable um, you know, I, I, like I do that. Like I try to make people feel comfortable. Like I don't want people to feel awkward. Um, and we sort of do all of that emotional labor that, that men are sort of often less inclined to do. So all of that factors in, like, it can't just be about this black and white law or like, this is rape. This is not rape. This guy did this thing. So he's a horrible person. And he has to be canceled forever. Cause I don't believe that's the case. Like I believe a lot of these guys fucked up and maybe they've changed or they can change or maybe we should be having conversations and instead of like banishing them from the world some of them should be banished but some of them I don't think so do you think like um like speaking on that like change needs to begin like socially or do you think it should start like from a young age like in the classroom like there should be some sort of like program or something like you know like when you're a kid and you have that program come in and you learn about like sexual assault and like puberty and all that shit like should like social challenges of male and female be incorporated into that or is it more of something that like families need to teach each other and like friends need to teach each other like where does it start 
Yeah, I mean, I think that there's more than one thing that needs to happen because a lot of it is to do with how you're raised and what's being modeled to you by your parents and mm. family, right? So that that socialization and what the kind of behavior that's acceptable from boys versus what's acceptable from girls and what's what girls are encouraged to do versus what boys are encouraged to do. A lot of that stuff happens like sub subconsciously, right? Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people aren't even aware um, that they're doing it. But yeah, I think that we need to be encouraging and, you know, parents of boys need to be kind of encouraging them to be more emotionally intelligent and more empathetic and, you know, paying attention to their surroundings more and to thinking about and, you know, talking about their emotions and all that stuff, blah, 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 not resorting to violence and aggressive aggression when they have issues. But I mean, I also, I think that, I mean, I think that sex education is an issue um, in schools. I mean, girls, this is sort of a different subject, but like girls don't, know hardly anything about their bodies you know we don't learn about ovulation and we don't learn about our cycles like I was well 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 into my adulthood before I realized that you're not just like you can't just get pregnant all the time Mm -hmm. you can get pregnant like two days a month and it's Mm -hmm. like oh this whole time I could have been in charge of my own reproduction Mm -hmm. and instead I'm fed pills that make me that like fuck up my body. Like the pill is shit. The pill is not good for you. And like, if you, I, I don't, I want the pill to be on the table. Yeah. I want <laughs> access to the pill, but it's bad for you. And I want, and there's way more options. Like women could totally be in control of their own reproduction mm-hmm. if they had that kind of knowledge. And we don't, um, sex education is horrible in all sorts of ways, but you mm-hmm. know, it's tough because I find that I find the conversations around consent really irritating as well, because it's not, you know, consent. That's just not how male female relationships work. That's not really how sex works. Like you don't say, do you want this? Yes or no. You know, like so much of our communication, it discounts the fact that so much of our communication isn't through language even, you know, so much of our communication is body language and things like that. And it's like, it's just not, there's never going to be a contract. You're not going to be like flirting with somebody and making out with somebody. And then they say like, okay, are you okay with this and that? And that, you know, that's just not how things work. And I don't think it's helpful to pretend as though it does work like that. Yeah. I'm seeing it increasingly. I've come to see it. Cause I was like, why don't I like this? Because again, it was kind of like, oh, this is supposed to be the feminist thing. And it's like, I, I don't see this as working. So it's like, why don't I like this? Uh, trying to resolve that in my mind. And it's just very neoliberal. Like, it's very, um, again, like you say, reducing it to everything to a contract, which is market logic. <laughs> and it's like, this is why um, why a lot of people don't like this, uh, because I'm an academic and I work with some people who um, talk a lot about how to get sort of the right ideas out there, like in schools, for example. And um, the things I've seen have been really underwhelming because they do rely on this sort of... Uh, conception of human interaction as being hyper contractual and that we all know our boundaries like from the outset um and that's just really not how it works and uh, it's the same mindset i think that feeds into the uh gender identity stuff and the hyper individualistic stuff it's just this whittling down of human interaction into 
um, it, it, it just, it, it's, it's unnatural. Like it, it's forcing something, you know, and, and it's, I don't think it's going to pan out in the long term. And I think that feminists really need to pivot away from it. Like you said, I think that a lot of good can be done if we are willing to have more nuanced conversations about this, but I don't know if we will. Um, so let's talk about you finally being banned from Twitter. <laughs> so what happened? <laughs> and I, I thought you'd be back by now. I know. Like, I yeah, saw, me too. <laughs> I, saw, I see people being banned from Twitter and then, you know, like a month later. So anyway, just I'll let you tell us about what happened. Yeah, I mean, it's insane how, like, stubborn they're being. They're just acting like a bunch of stubborn little kids. Um, I mean, because I didn't really do anything that bad. Like, I just was, like, I mean, I was, I was, what I did, like, the actual reason that I was banned was that I was challenging gender identity ideology, and I had a really big platform, and my platform was growing. So, again, it was, like, this thing where people were paying attention, and I was getting support, and the bullies weren't able to shut me down. So I was, like, questioning the narrative, and there was a lot of people who didn't like that. And there was people I believe who are connected at Twitter who didn't like that. I think that there are trans activists who have power at Twitter and, you know, there's obviously trans activists who have power at Twitter and they brag about it. And, you know, eventually like I, you know, I said a couple things like men aren't women. And like, I asked like, what's the difference between a trans woman and a man? And I wasn't saying that to be, a dick. I was saying that because I was trying to get at a point, which is like, at what point does a man turn into a trans woman? What are we talking about here? Because obviously under trans activism, it's just an announcement. You know, it doesn't mean anything. Um, and then finally, uh, there was the whole Jonathan Yaniv situation where in case anyone who's listening doesn't know, although they probably do, this man, um, took a bunch of uh, female estheticians in the Vancouver area to the human rights tribunal. Um, he charged or tried to charge them with uh, human rights violations because they wouldn't give him a Brazilian bikini wax because he's male. And he claimed this was discrimination based on his supposed trans identity. Um, and somebody oh. sort of delved into his background because there was a publication ban at the time. So the media weren't reporting his name. Um, they were obviously referring to him as she pretending that he was a woman. Um, but they also were not using his name in media coverage, although they were using the names of the women, which I thought was insane. Um, and they reversed that publication ban eventually. But, uh, so somebody figured out who he was a blogger. Uh, was it gender trender? Uh, I think it was gender trender. I feel bad that I can't remember. Um, but, and so I tweeted this blog post and this blog post, like, uh, you know, connected the, his Twitter account. So trusted nerd um, and found that he had been kind of harassing girls and talking about like, you know, helping girls change their tampons in the washroom and all this gross stuff. Um, and that he sort of had a long history of this kind of behavior, you know, where he would go after businesses to try to get free shit or compensation. You know, he was very litigious. He was always trying to sue people for money. You know, like he's a grifter, right? Like this was his thing. Nothing to do with a trans identity, right? He was just using that to try to get money. <clears throat> 
Um, and I tweeted the blog post and said, is it true that JY, they're referring to JY, him as JY in the media, is actually trusted nerd, like I linked to his Twitter account, and, you know, it was confirmed to me, and so I tweeted a screenshot that I think somebody else had posted that was like him leaving a review that was saying, so-and-so did a great job on my Brazilian bikini wax, and it was his male face and his male name, um, and that's all I did, and then I was I was permanently banned and they, you know, I've never heard from Twitter. You know, they've never, they never explained to me what I did. Even they didn't say you broke this rule. They just said you broke the Twitter rules about hateful conduct, but they didn't say what it was that I did that was hateful. Cause of course I wasn't harassing anybody. I didn't say anything hateful. Um, uh, I can guess that maybe it was this misgendering thing. Um, but like, I mean, this guy had his, his male name all over social media. He was still using, you know, he was alternating between a male name and a female name and male pronouns and female pronouns. And nobody would have even known if he wanted to be referred to as he or she, because he was using both. Um, and then of course, Yaniv bragged later that he was, he said that he was personally responsible for having me banned from Twitter. So I don't know what that means. I don't know if he's <laughs> in contact with the people at Twitter, he has power there, whatever. Anyway. Um, and we're still like, we sued Twitter on the basis of breach of contract and false advertising essentially, um, and lost, but we've appealed. So that's sort of still in process. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, so I, I'm pretty sure you've talked about this, but I know other people have, uh, some of the issues surrounding big corporations, basically owning public communication like that. Um, so the old kind of old school libertarian thing was like, people can do whatever they want. They can say whatever they want. But once you have a private institution controlling it, they have the right to deny you a platform or give you a platform, um, because it's their company or whatever. Um, but now things have changed and you've basically got like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram controlling entire, like, what do you call it? Um, avenues of communication and that's where like a vast majority of communication online is happening i've seen facebook and twitter called the public squares of today like sure we don't we we don't go out and because people say oh well you can go out and you can talk in the streets so what's the problem um but of course like the world is different now and it by not being able to have a facebook profile or not being able to have a twitter profile you're basically cutting that person off from being able to speak Um, so what do you think about that? Um, and, um, what can, what, what, what should people do? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it makes me really angry actually when people don't take it seriously, because it is really serious. I mean, these platforms are multi-billion dollar corporations and they're controlling our access to information and what we're allowed to say, what kinds of information we're allowed to share. Um, and you know, for somebody like me, this is how I work. Like I can't, this is my career. Like it's my ability to make a living. It's my ability to communicate with people. It's my ability to be in contact with, you know, I'm a writer and an editor and a journalist. And so it impacts my ability to be in touch with other journalists and other writers and other editors. 
Um, and to be able to, I mean, comment on things, but also to share my work and get my work out there, you know, like I don't work for any organization or institution or company like that. And I do that on purpose. Like I want to be independent because my, my independence allows me to say what I say. I mean, a big reason that I was able to write about all these things in exactly the way I wanted to was because I had my own platform, thank God, because I couldn't publish about this stuff anywhere. You know, I could barely get published about the prostitution issue, never mind gender identity. I mean, nobody would, would publish me when I wanted to write about Bill C-16. Um, eventually, like I pitched so many places in Canada um, and eventually I convinced my editor at the national observer to let me publish something but she wouldn't pay me um like it's like fine but you have to write it for free like okay (laughs) fine like but you know like this I wouldn't have been able to get this stuff out there if I didn't have my own platform initially um now of course lots of people are publishing about it or more places are anyway but um and I'm able to speak and write for all sorts of different platforms luckily but, you know, it's it's really dangerous to hand over that kind of power to corporations. And I don't know why people pretend like it, this. This is where we're having these conversations. It is the public square. This like Twitter has a huge impact on elections. Um, this is where all the politicians are. And this is where politicians put out their messages. Um, uh, and this is where journalists do their work. Um, they're really important, impactful platforms and to pretend otherwise is just a lie. Um, and people really should be taking this seriously and and fighting back against censorship on these platforms because it it matters a lot in terms of public discourse, in terms of democracy, in terms of free speech. Before I ask the last question, did anyone have Are we going to talk about the Montreal thing? Oh, yeah. Sorry, I skipped over that because we had already talked about prostitution. But did you want to get into that a little more i just think it's like an interesting story just because of how it fucking happened but yeah we could talk about that real quick um you wrote about how in montreal there was a woman working in prostitution who was murdered um and this was because a convicted murderer was let out on parole so he could quote satisfy his sexual urges so a lot of the interpretations i read of this was that we need to decriminalize prostitution prostitution is like you know it's it's the stigma against sex workers that caused this and we need to get rid of that and then that will sort of help these women um there was an article by you and there was an article by cherry smiley and trisha bupti that disagreed of course and said that well actually this is shows why what happens when you don't take it seriously and this shows how it is an act of violence against women Um, so why do you, I guess you could speak a little bit about the story from your perspective and then why do you think people are coming to such vastly different interpretations? It seems like anything could happen and people would still call for decriminalization even when it doesn't make sense. So what's going on there? Yeah, the argument that that, that situation was, was a good reason to decriminalize prostitution made no sense at all to me because it's like, so all you're doing is arguing that this is this man should have a right to pay for sex this is his human right that's what essentially decriminalization says that paying for sex is harmless and that these men should all be allowed to do it um and of course like 
the reason that he was allowed to access this woman and ultimately murder her was because prostitution is so normalized, you know, despite our laws in Canada, which supposedly criminalize the purchase of sex. I mean, that's ignored by, by cops in Vancouver for sure. Um, and also, oh, I think in Montreal, you know, I think BC and Montreal or Quebec have kind of decided unofficially to ignore Canada's prostitution laws. It seems like other provinces have used them to crack down a bit on, on Johns and, and traffickers. Um, but, you know, his parole officers from the sound of it decided to let him see a prostitute because he like needed his, he had his, his sexual needs that needed to be met. Like he wasn't allowed to have relationships with women because they knew he was too dangerous but, you know, he needs to have sex. And that's how prostitution is, is treated by so many people, that it's just an outlet for men and that men need this. Um, and that, you know, these women are treated as disposable for that reason, right? Like she somehow doesn't count as a woman like these other women who he might endanger because she's, she's just a prostitute. Um, so, I mean, I think that it speaks to the fact that prostitution already is normalized, and certainly it doesn't bolster the argument that prostitution should be decriminalized and that it should just be treated as, like, a normal, everyday thing that, that isn't dangerous or harmful. Um, I saw Terry Jean Bedford speak, like, years and years and years ago, and she's, like, one of the main pushers for, um, like, decriminalization of sex work and shit but um she had this quote where she said you can't punish men for their natural needs and i i guess just like what do you think about that and what laws do you think um would be beneficial in to put in place now with like looking in the future with taking prostitution away in general with that in mind like what do you think needs to be changed right now and then what do you think needs to be changed in general for like the future of mankind well, we have the laws already in Canada. We just need to force the governments and the police to take those laws seriously and um, to punish men who, who pay for sex and ensure that, you know, I mean, we it, it's not like we expect realistically all prostitution to completely end. But we do want to dissuade people and we do want to send the message, as they did in Sweden, that this is exploitative and that this is wrong and that this is rooted in sexism and misogyny. Um, and that again, it's not, it's not okay to pay somebody for access to their body. People are not objects to be bought and sold. Um, but I also think it's really important, you know, a big part of the problem obviously is that women get into prostitution because they don't have any money because they need to survive. Um, and they have no other options. And so that's why I advocate for, you know, EBI, universal basic income, <clears throat> and and exiting services, of course. So women have a way to get out of prostitution if they want to get out, um, higher welfare rates, you know, social housing, like lowered rents. I mean, the reality is that women need to be able to afford to live. Otherwise, they're never really fully going to be able to avoid prostitution. Like none of these women want to be there. This is a, such a lie that like women love like fucking strangers day in and day out, you know, strangers who are abusive towards them and might murder them. Mm. Um, women are there for the most part because they have no other choice and they need other options. You know, they need access to in education, jobs, 
um, social services, housing, food, income, all of those things. So, like, so that's a, laws a really everywhere need to change. <laughs> yeah, Pretty there's a everything. bunch of stuff that needs to change, um, including, you know, ensuring that men don't feel emboldened to pay for sex and mm. that it's fine and they won't be punished and nobody will judge them. Everybody should be judging them, like put their fucking names on billboards for all I care. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of vastly different interpretations, I guess I have one more before our final question. Um, because that reminded me of, uh, in terms of like the gender and sex distinction, it's sort of like um, a mantra now where it's like sex is between your legs and gender is between your ears. And it's said all the time to me by people who clearly don't understand that um, gender is a social construct. Uh, but then they proceed to treat gender as an essential fact about someone, right? Um, and then gender is a social construct and it, it was oppressive to women but now all of a sudden it's determined solely by your feelings which was never it never used to be thought that way at all like primary feminist texts did not talk about it that way at all all over the world like countries with like third genders don't even think about it that way it's not something that you self-identify as it's like a pattern of behavior for example but Again, it's it's the sort of liberal mainstream feminists who who will be the first to say gender is a social construct and gender is your sort of role as a woman. So then why can't they make that leap to like, therefore, <laughs> identifying primarily by your gender rather than sex is to identify with your quote role or your the stereotypes? Like, what's the disconnect there? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, hard question. I mean, it's totally irrational, right? Because on one hand, they'll say that they oppose like biological essentialism, but then they all support biological essentialism. They are all saying that gender is inherent and that you're born with some kind of gendered soul and that people are either somehow like naturally masculine or naturally feminine. And then they seem not to understand that that's, a really sexist thing to say. Um, and, and then, so they're saying that masculinity and feminine femininity is natural and inherent, but that biology is nothing at all. That doesn't even exist. That's a social construct. Like it totally, it's just strange to me. Like, and it's just, it's hard to take people seriously when they say things like that, because I'm like, okay, got it. Your brain doesn't work. Um, <laughs> Do you think that um, it's generally like, a Western ideological point of view where it's like the whole modern illusions of individualism and like having your sense of self as opposed to like in other places in the world, people literally don't have time to think about how they want to portray themselves to other people. Is it a Western thought? Definitely. It's, it's definitely a Western concept and you know, it's really quite elitist, you know, like to me, it seems that it all came out of, or almost all of it came out of academia and gender studies. It's all this, like, this theory, right? Queer theory, postmodernist theory, you know, trans theory, which they teach in gender studies. And none of it makes any sense. It's all jargon. Um, I mean, academia makes me really angry for a lot of reasons, but, but, you know, essentially what they teach you to do, I mean, I have a graduate degree and I have a master's degree in gender, sexuality, and women's studies. So I did all this and I practiced this and I regurgitated all the jargon that they fed me and thought that that made me intelligent. And it wasn't until later that I was like, oh, this doesn't fucking mean anything. <laughs> like, <laughs> 
but you know, so what, I mean, it's useful because when people do it to me, I'm like, mm, you're not saying anything. <laughs> you're just saying a bunch of words. Like, but they sort of all, they all reinforce one another's, you know, it's this kind of elitism insider outsider thing where they all speak the same language back and forth to each other and they have to keep doing it and reinforcing it so that academia still matters. And so that these faculties and this theory and these studies and these dissertations and this this nonsense is all treated as though it's legitimate and somehow important and worthwhile when in fact you know a lot of people like if somebody spouts a bunch of academic jargon at you about the laughter about women's rights or about feminism or gender um and it doesn't really make sense to you. I think a lot of people will just assume that it doesn't make sense to them because they're stupid or they're not academic or they're not intellectual. And it's not true. They do that on purpose. Um, and you can tell because if you ask these people to explain what they're saying in plain language so that everybody understands, they can't because it's just, it's these meaningless words. And that's what, you know, trans activism does that too, where it's created these mantras and this whole language that really doesn't mean anything, but they all just keep repeating it over and over and over and repeating it back to one another. And if somebody doesn't agree with it, they shut them out and keep on repeating it. Mm. Um, I don't even know how I started talking about this or, and I don't remember what the <laughs> original question Neither was, do I. <laughs> but like, you know, like, Oh, this, this stuff around gender and sex, like it's like, they, I don't even know if they really are thinking it through. I think they're sort of repeating what they're told to repeat. And I don't think they understand the words that they're saying. Um, and I don't think that they can start questioning it. I think that they're scared to question it because, you know, if they do start questioning it, that means that they have to abandon their community or they will be abandoned by their community and by their people. And they have to start questioning everything, everything that they've attached their identity to, right? Like what I said before around people, people think that their politics and their ideas and their ideologies are their identity. And if they have to get rid of that or open things up or start to acknowledge the fact that maybe these ideas aren't so solid um, or maybe they're wrong, then I think that their, their whole identity falls apart and everything that they've built their life around and who they are and who they're connected to and how much better they are than everybody else, their political purity, et cetera, that all falls apart. And I think that probably scares people. Yeah, I remember I when I had these like liberal views a long time ago, I was very Pushing scared. Them away. <laughs> yeah, I was I was I was really scared when I realized that I didn't agree with a lot of them and I was afraid that I was going to be ostracized and I didn't want to speak my opinions about any of them. Mm -hmm. uh, so I guess the last question that we were going to ask you is what are your suggestions for young women in Canada interested in feminism? Um, well, I think that they should read as much as they possibly can. I think that they should read about the history of the women's movement. I think they should read about the suffragettes. I think they should go back even before that. I think that they should figure out what this movement is actually about and why it matters because nobody fucking does that anymore and it would really help. <laughs> um, they should go back and read the second wave texts and read all that theory and read, you know, like, Robin Morgan and Sheila Jeffries and for sure read Janice Raymond. I mean, read what she actually wrote in the transsexual empire. If you're going to pretend to hate her or criticize her, um, because it's a good book and it's still applicable today. Um, 
and Andrea Dworkin, of course, and, and, and all of these other women, you know, go to the Vancouver Rape Relief website because they have a ton of resources there and articles there um, and learn about what the Nixon, Kimberly Nixon case is really about. Um, and then I think, like, just, like, get involved and start doing something. Like, I think that people get overwhelmed and people get upset for a good reason and then they sort of feel helpless and don't know what to do and a lot of that is because we're all so separated and isolated you know Canada is a really big country and we're really spread out like I said like I'm lucky to be in Vancouver and to be around other women um, who are you know share my views and things like that but not everyone is in that situation But, you know, just finding one or two other people and just starting any group and doing anything, like start like a book club or something like that, or just start like make posters, make stickers, organize an event. Like that's what I really, you know, like the women who've organized events around the gender identity issue have been, you know, really revolutionary. Like they've changed history, right? Like what the women, you know, those, the, what the women in Toronto did, you know, that's like a historical moment because it turned into such a big deal and it brought up all these, these questions and important fights around free speech and what libraries are for, never mind, you know, like this conversation around gender identity. And, you know, same thing with the events that um, we've been doing in Vancouver, you know, Holly and Amy who organize those events um, and are still organizing those events, they're just regular women. Like they weren't, you know, activists. They weren't women who had this like long history in the women's movement. They didn't know everything. They're just regular women who were mad and wanted us to be able to talk about this stuff. And they were like, let's do something. We're going to organize an event. And they just did. And that changed everything. And they tried to shut us down and they couldn't shut us down. We're still doing them and we're pissing everybody off a lot. But like, it's galvanizing, you know, like it's growing and it's growing into a movement. And it's not only that people are like getting on board and like, yeah, let's talk about this. It's that every time there's one of these events, wherever it is, Seattle, New York, Vancouver, Toronto, etc., women meet each other and they start groups like it's movement building it actually is literally building a movement because almost at every event I do some woman in the audience stands up and says I don't know anybody who thinks like this is there anybody here who wants to just like have a meeting once a week and try to start doing something and then you know a few other women will be like yeah me and then they connect and go off and start doing something like it's really um, important and valuable in, in a lot of ways. And there's a million different things that you can do. You know, everybody doesn't have to be a public speaker. Everybody doesn't have to write, like there's different things that people are good at and different things that they feel comfortable. You don't have to go to a march or stand outside with a placard if that's not your thing. There's a bunch of other shit you can do, you know. And for everyone who's listening, while you're in quarantine, you should read Feminist Current because honestly, <laughs> Megan, you put... Like when I first started having these thoughts, I think Sonia shared one article that you wrote on there and you were able to put into words what I'd been thinking, but felt unable to articulate. Um, So, yeah. (laughs) Jenna thinks you're cool. I'm I'm proud that Feminist Current is Canadian. Um, You know, like the sort of mainstream liberals, probably the most annoying thing for me about them is just how they try to paint themselves as the underdogs and as victims when clearly like they're on top, like they are, they've got Google, they've got Amazon, they've got most politicians in their back pocket. So I don't know where they get the nerve calling themselves radical. 
then feminists like you who get so much shit and I don't know how you do it. <laughs> and I'm like sort of trying to work myself up to have that type of steel nerve um, because I do disagree with a lot of my colleagues like all the time. And like I said, um, so, so for women listening, it's like to be radical. Yeah. People are going to hate you. So, so sometimes, you know, I'm not saying piss people off for no reason, but sometimes if people are pissed off, especially if they're in power, that might actually mean you're kind of hitting, you're touching a nerve for a good reason. And, and you had a good tweet one time, um, where you just wrote like, be, we need to be braver or something like that. And I was like, honestly, that's just what it is at this point. Cause like, we've been talking about this for at least a decade and people are like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? There, there's like, I'm a, I'm more of a materialist feminist than, um, and like, I'm all about the, the material conditions, but there is culture also plays a role. And there is a point where we just need to freaking be braver. Like we just need to like, not care what a shitty minority of silly activists are saying. Um, and there is a a community of people that will support you if you, say stuff or if you want to do something like there is that community they're online they're in their homes they're just like hiding you know like they're all there and once you say something they all come out like literally (laughs) i get like radical feminist ads on my uh, ads um just like people adding me on my instagram like all the time and i'm like oh apparently it's out now (laughs) like like there is the community's there and again, yeah, you just have to be braver and then you will find your place in that community. And anyone who wants to be like an activist or do something, it's like you're you're gonna like you you do have to kind of push through that. Mm-hmm. Um, and just I, I do appreciate that you are doing that, Megan, and you're setting a good example for women. Um, I think John Kay said about you once like uh you know, here is what the media constantly says they want from women to be strong and like not give a shit what people think and say what's on their mind. And here's someone doing it and they fucking hate her guts. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, that's that's basically it. It's like, yeah, we, we love female empowerment until you say something that we don't like. And then all of a sudden until it's inconvenient for us. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, it's like, and the more people that are brave, the more people that will be brave. I mean, and, and we just have to get comfortable with the fact that everybody's not going to like us and everybody's not going to agree with us and just going to have to live with that. Mm. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank thank you you so so much much for coming coming on. on This has been super cool. It's awesome that you guys are doing this. I'm stoked. (laughs) It's good to see you all. Yeah. Yeah. It's great to meet you. Stay safe. <laughs> 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 Taking all my vitamins. <laughs>